Good morning again, Redeemer. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up or your phone or iPad to Acts chapter 9. By way of introduction, uh, last week Brian preached about the miracle of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to look at another conversion story this, this morning. And there are some similarities. Uh, the eunuch is baptized. Paul, Saul, is also baptized. The Lord uses another person. Uh, he uses used Philip, and here he uses Ananias. Um, and then there, there are some differences. The difference that I want us to think about this morning is that the Ethiopian eunuch, he enters the scene and he exits pretty fast. And we don't hear about him again. That's not true for the apostle Saul. Uh, Luke, we believe, actually travels with Saul during his earthly ministry. And so Luke not only recounts the conversion of Saul right here, but as Acts continues to unfold, Luke is also going to be recording uh, who Saul became and all that God did through Saul. So in a sense, as we read Saul, this is the beginning uh, of a long conversion story that's stretched out, and we get a bird's eye view into what conversion looks like. Also, um, just want to make you aware that uh, cr chronologically, if you piece together Acts 9, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, and Galatians, we think that what you see uh, happening uh, between verse 25 and 26, there's probably a three-year span. So Luke omits uh, some things that happens uh, within, between verse 25 and 26. And so when Saul shows up in Jerusalem, Probably three years has transpired. This is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which is 150 miles north of Jerusalem, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was, another, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay ha his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among uh, them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we turn our hearts and our eyes and our minds to it and pray that uh, in this beautiful encounter of worship that you have received our praise, you have pardoned our iniquity, you have reminded us again that we're your children and we pray, O oh Lord, as a good father that you would instruct and incline our hearts to your ways. We pray for the binding of Satan. We pray, Lord, that he will not distract or give us over to error or make us preoccupied with the things of this world. Would you, O oh Lord, arrest our attention by your spirit that we would see and hear from the resurrected king. May your people see you. May your people hear from you. And may you be pleased to use your servant. Forgive us of all of our sins, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thus far, the best book that I've read this year is the one that I'm holding in your hand, and it's entitled Gay Girl, Good God, and it's written by Jackie Hill Perry, and it's the story of who I was and who God has always been. And in the story, she's talking about her conversion, what it means to be converted from a lesbian lifestyle into one who walks in truth. And here's what I want to read to you. It's a section from the book. I arrived at work the next day, a new creature. Though my soul was much different, my clothes were the same. My best friend and coworker, Mike, looked at me and said, you look different, Jackie. What do you mean, I said, considering the fact that my boxers were still showing and my chest was still flattened by an extra small sports bra? I don't know, man, you just look brighter. Maybe he noticed that the veil had been removed 
but I did not know what to call it. It felt weird to enter back into the world after meeting God. Just two days ago, I was flirting with girls during my lunch break, but now I knew God was watching. It was not as if he hadn't seen me before. The difference now was that I actually cared. And then she came in, a beautiful woman who days ago I would have tried to pursue. But now in me, there was a strange conviction that there was another route he wanted me to go, another beauty he made for me to delight in, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I had been his child for less than 24 hours, and he was already changing me. Is this what it feels like to be a Christian? To have this quiet war inside of yourself at all times and at all places? When the Holy Spirit made his home within me, he snatched the blinds down and let the light in. Not only could I see God in his glory with a smile on my face, but I could also see sin for the liar that it was. Light has a way of welcoming in the truth and letting the truth put its feet up, which in turn means that everything not like it, though it may invite itself over, it can't get comfortable enough to stay. My current customer was musing over if he wanted extra pickles or onions. Meanwhile, what had once taken a priest and a lamb to accomplish was now accessible to me in the middle of, of a fad food restaurant. Of course, bystanders wouldn't have noticed the temple or the veil or the throne room of God. All they saw was me, a cash register, dressed like a man, and an indecisive restaurant patron. But there I was, face and body bow before him in the face of temptation. Jesus' feet were inches from my hands. I lifted my head just enough to notice mercy and grace coming before me. Before I knew it, it I was back with the same temptation around me, but someone else's power inside of me. It's poetic, and it's beautiful. She's talking about conversion and what it meant her second day of being a believer when Holy Spirit took residence inside of her and changed her and made her new, even though externally she looked the same. Conversion. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus says that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Call it the new birth. Call it being born again. Call it being saved. Call it being transferred from the domain of darkness into God's marvelous light. Label it what you would, would, would want to, but all of these phrases are approximating what it means to be converted. And we're looking at conversion this morning. And the temptation is to look at Saul's conversion and to notice the discontinuity. If you've watched the old Bible movies, then you probably think that Saul is on a horse 
riding into Damascus from Jerusalem and he is struck by light. And so he, he's knocked off of his high horse and he's groping around in the dirt and, and he can't see scales are now on his eyes and, and he's blinded by the light of the glory of Jesus. And he hears Jesus's voice, but the people walking with him think he's crazy because they, they hear voices, but they don't see anything. And, and Saul has these scales that fall off and he doesn't eat for three days and he hears the audible voice of Jesus. Jesus, right? It's so easy to look at the discontinuity of, of dreams and visions and, and this resurrection appearance, this, uh, uh, this appearance of Jesus to him. It's easy to see all of this and see discontinuity. But the reason I had Steve read from 1 Timothy is because I think what Paul would have us look at is not the discontinuity, but the continuity. Paul says, the way that Jesus rescued me, a former insolent opponent, a former blasphemer who acted in ignorance and in unbelief, but he displayed his patience and mercy. Paul says, guess what, Redeemer? That is an example for any who would believe in Jesus. An example. So what Paul would tell us is, Look for the continuity and ask yourself that question. Have you been converted? Have you experienced conversion? Or have you encountered adhesion? And they're two different things. Adhesion means Jesus is a way. He is a truth. He is a path that leads you to God. Adhesion means you adopt certain Christian principles like coming to church, maybe saying your prayers before grace, before you eat your food. But there's been no significant heart change, no drastic reorientation of your heart. We're not talking about adhesion. We're talking about conversion here. And that's the question I want you to wrestle with yourself, not for your spouse not for your children, not for your friends, but for you. Have you experienced conversion? Now, I got four points. The fourth one is going to be really quick. So three longer ones, so to speak. Here's the first one. Who can be and needs conversion? That's the question. Who can be converted and who needs conversion? That's the first question. All right, y'all. So forgive me if I say Paul and Saul because we're talking about the same person. All right. Saul is an interesting fella. I wonder where he would be like on the Enneagram or on personality profiles. Like where, where would Paul rank? And, and here's why. That Paul on the one hand is on this left side of the moral compass or the moral spectrum. And he's also on kind of this, this, this right side. And here's what I mean. Paul is a killer. And if he did not literally kill Christians, he certainly has the blood of Christians on his sandals. Right? Now, back in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was martyred, 
Saul approved of his execution. Saul was there. Saul was given the garments of the men who threw stones and martyred Stephen. Saul was there. And after Stephen was martyred, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And and this same Saul, in, in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3, he then goes into the homes of women and men, dragging them out of their homes to persecute them. And then when Christians fled north 150 miles, Saul goes and gets a letter from the high priest for permission to go track them down who just left. And when he was entering into Damascus, he entered there breathing threats and murder against the disciples, anyone who named the name of Jesus. He went there with a letter to find anyone who identified with the way that he might lock them up and put them in chains and carry them 150 miles south for them to have the same fate that Stephen had. That's why Saul would later say, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy destroy it. This is Saul. And then he's on the other end of the spectrum. This is what I had Steve read also from Philippians. If you saw him, you might think he's the most holy person in the room. Galatians 1, you have heard about my former life in Judaism. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Philippians 3, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Do y'all see that? He's like a deranged, misinformed terrorist and a pietistic, pharisaical law-keeping person bound up in one? Why? Why? What is God showing us by rescuing this kind of guy? I think he's saying, first, whichever end of the spectrum you find yourself on, there is grace. And you need Jesus. I'd imagine that some of us in this room, maybe you got bodies on your name. Maybe you have killed someone. Or maybe you've murdered your marriage. That in the wake of your decisions, there is carnage and wreckage and destruction. Maybe when you look in the mirror based on the things that you've thought and you've done, that you hate who you see when you look in the mirror. And your temptation is to think that you are beyond the reach of Christ. And I want to tell you, Saul is an example If God's grace goes to one who tries to kill God's bride, there is grace for you. 
and it's real, and it's not make-believe. And if you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you've been taught to believe that you can earn your way, that you can live into and up to the perfections of God, I want to convince you that you are arrogant, that you are striving, and that it is impossible for any person who is honest with themselves to meet and live up to the righteous requirements of, of the Lord. And if you think that and say that and orient your life around that, then what Paul says is you actually nullify the work of Jesus. You actually preach to God there was no reason for Jesus to come. And if you are being convicted of your own self-righteousness and you are driven to despair by the law, then I want you to know despair not that if God can rescue the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the zealot of the zealot, the circumcised of the circumcised, then he also gives grace to you. And I think it means for a church, we ought to want people in this kingdom who are a little bit rough around the edges. You know what I mean? Did you notice the reaction to everybody when they found out Paul was, Saul was a Christian? The Ananias is like, no, bro, I don't want to go. And then when the people who heard Paul preaching, no, bro, we, we, are you sure? Are you trying to trick us? Three years later, when he goes down to Jerusalem to try to join in with the disciples, disciples are like, whoa, tap your brakes, brother. We know about you and your reputation. I think we would be scared around this dude. Are you about to flip out and lose it? Are you about to revert to your old ways? And guess what? It's a blessing. It's a blessing to watch and be around people who come out of this and to watch them wrestle with the faith and to watch Jesus change them. Yesterday, two of our former students showed up at our house. Hadn't seen them in five years, and we sat on my porch, and they were weeping, and we were weeping, because we saw what God did in them. We saw when they were rough around the edges and didn't believe. I think as a church, we should long for that. We should long to see the name of Jesus go out and transform the hearts and lives of people that if it were not for him, we would be scared to be around them. Who does the converting? Did you notice the when and the where and the how? Because I think it paves a way for the who. When is Saul converted? Where is he in his life? Is he crying out for mercy? No, it says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, that he was not in a place of seeking after God. He was in active rebellion, intentional rebellion when he stopped in his tracks. And where does it take place? It doesn't take place in a home. 
It doesn't take place in the synagogue or the church. It takes place in the streets, in the middle of nowhere. And there's mystery around his conversion. First, this light shows up and it's Jesus. And then Saul already knows the word, but it feels like he knows very little. And then Saul is blinded, but then he has to wait three days. And then is, is he converted while he's praying? What, what is going on? He's seeing visions. We don't know. It's mysterious. We can't pinpoint the exact location or time. And I think that's the point. The point is there is someone like the God in Psalm 139 who's at work. Psalm 139, the God whose presence cannot be fled, the God who can connect with anyone in any place at any time. When he's ready, he's relentless in his rescuing. We're, used, we're not used to this kind of invasive power, are we? I can turn my phone on airplane mode and no text will come through, right? I can drive to certain parts of Alabama and we don't get service. You can build a tornado bunker and not be accessible. I heard someone say this morning that they're going on a vacation. They're going to be off the grid. You can't get off the grid with God. How are you going to get off the grid with God? Dave, David says, where can I go to flee your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. If darkness covers me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. This is the smothering, always in reach, never beyond the gaze of God. And that's what happens here. In the middle of nowhere, when Saul is intentioning to go and harm Christians, the God of Psalm 139 flexes on him. All of a sudden, light shone. The resurrected Jesus, dwelling in inapproachable light, the one Stephen saw at his right hand as he was dying, now appears in splendor. And Saul seems to recognize the voice of the one he's hearing, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. But let me tell you, I'm going to tell you what to do right now. You're going there to enter the city to kill. Let me tell you where you're going. You're going to the city and you will do what you're told to do. And the men traveling with him heard a voice, but they didn't see the light that Saul saw. How do you do that? And Saul, seeking, in, seeking Damascus to find Christians to bind them, he's now bound and led into Damascus by the people with him. Three days, he has no sight. Three days, he has no food. He is now at the mercy of Jesus. This is the same Jesus that then appears to a vision in Ananias and tells Ananias, go to this house of Judas. There's a man named Saul from Tarsus. He has also seen a vision of you coming to him to give him sight. Like this is the resurrected Jesus running everything. And Ananias did. Laid hands on him. The Holy Spirit was given to him. He was baptized in the name of Jesus. Who's doing the converting here? It's Jesus. He is still on the move, converting sinners, convincing skeptics, rescuing rebels, and calling people to himself Whenever he wants, however he wants, and wherever he wants. 
Geography is no barrier. The behavior of the unconverted is no barrier. And when Jesus shows up, his sheep will hear his voice. So halfway between Cincinnati, Ohio and Dayton is a small town called Middletown. And if you've read Hillbilly Elegy or watched a movie, some of those events take place in Middletown. It's an obscure town that may not show up on your map, but it's the story of a dysfunctional, poor, white, rural family touched by abuse and alcoholism and mental illness. It's obscure. And unless you've read the book or watched a movie, it means nothing to you. But it's special to me. I lived there for six months, was working out of a plant in Cincinnati, was relocated to Dayton, and needed somewhere to stay halfway in between. So I bought a one-bedroom apartment for six months, moved in my futon that I bought from Walmart, had one set of dishes. I wasn't even unpacked yet. And in that little obscure town, that's when your pastor met Jesus. I woke up one morning and my intention, I promise you that day, was not to get converted. Had a whole list of other things I planned on doing that day and conversion was not on the list. And the Lord says, get up and go read the Bible. I never bought a Bible. Somehow I had a Bible packed in boxes and I opened it and I did not know what to read and I read Galatians. It seems short enough, just read it. And got to Galatians 2 and was stopped in my tracks right there. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God if I could be made righteous according to my works and Jesus died for nothing. That verse Right there, $100 futon in the middle of nowhere with no one around me, Jesus says, live. And that's good news that he is the Lord of salvation. It means he doesn't have to ask your permission to come and rescue you. It means that geography is no barrier. It means that parents, if you have children who are wayward and you're worried if they are walking in the Lord, you're worried about them. It means that you can pray and you can go to sleep at night because he's the Lord of salvation. And when he shows up, he shows out. And when he shows up and speaks to his sheep, they hear his voice and they respond and they bow the knee. It's good news that he's the Lord of salvation. 
It's good news that all he calls to himself will come. It's good news that you can't outrun the hound of heaven. It's good news that you cannot drop off of God's grid. It's good news that darkness is not dark for him, but light. It's good news that as you are on your way into sin, the Lord Jesus can stop you in your tracks and call you to himself. It's good news to have a God, this sovereign and good and gracious, and ever present. He's the Lord of salvation. He does the saving. And you may not have a Middletown or a Damascus Road experience. You may not know a day where you have not known Jesus, and baby, that's a miracle too. He's been good to you, to keep you, to rescue you and to claim you. He's the Lord of salvation. What are some marks of conversion? If conversion is done by Jesus, how do we know? I'm going to give you a few internal ones, a few external ones, and one relational one. Internally, I think there's an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord Saul calls Jesus Lord, and Ananias calls him Lord. Verse 20, Saul proclaimed Jesus, who is Lord, as the Son of God. Verse 28, he preached boldly in the name of the Lord. He went into the synagogues proving that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, something internally has clicked with the apostle Paul or Saul. Jesus is no longer a way, a truth, a life. He is the truth, the way, and the life. He is no longer a man starting a movement that can be matched by other movements. No, he is the royal, divine son of God, truly God, fully man, who actually came to earth to offer his life as an atonement for your iniquity and to render to God perfection in its purest forms. There is one person who can keep and has kept the law of God perfectly in word and thought and deed and in action, and his name is not a mortal man like you and me. It's the name and person of Jesus. And so for the person who is converted, there is an internal persuasion that there is no name given under heaven except his name by which we must be saved. We're not converted if we don't believe that and rest in that and cling to that. We may be a whole lot of other things, but we're not converted there's a new master inside that, that, that Jackie Hill talked about. Someone else is now living inside of you, and it's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That these are internal convictions, internal works, and then it's external. It has to do with the orientation of our lives that you meet Saul who goes into Damascus to murder you meet Saul who goes into Damascus to bind those who claim the name of Jesus. And by the time Jesus is done with him, you're not going to bind nobody. I'm going to bind you. You're not going in there to hurt them. You're not going to be hurt for my name. You're not going in there to convince them that he's not the Christ. You will convince them that I am. You're not going back to Jerusalem to kiss up to the high priest. 
You're going to be sent out into the world to proclaim the one higher than him. This is a total reorientation of Paul's life. Someone else is at the helm driving and leading and setting priorities. And Saul is actually pleased that Jesus is driving. He's baptized the sign and seal of God's covenant that what's happened to him internally is now marked outwardly, that he is now marked with the same sacrament that marks all who profess the name of Jesus. And there's a relational piece to this. It's Saul's relationship to the church. Did you notice what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He couldn't even see Jesus in his inapproachable light. So he's certainly not physically persecuting the resurrected Jesus. Well, who then is Saul hurting? He's persecuting the church. Jesus is the good husband who identifies with his bride, the church. And if you touch the church, you got to deal with him. Ask any husband in this room about our wives. You, you can't hurt them and not have to deal with us. There's a union, there's a mysterious, beautiful union between husband and wife that to hurt her is to harm him. And that's what Jesus is saying. He is so united to his bride, the church, that when Paul is down there hurting, hurting her, Jesus says, you're doing it to me. Stop. Did you notice what Ananias said to Saul when he went to him? It's not a throwaway word. He greets him. And the first word out of his mouth is brother Saul. Did you notice Saul's posture? He's against the church in verse 1. And then when you get down to verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. In other words, there's been a radical reorientation, not just internally, not just externally, but relationally. Paul loves the church and the body of Christ. He desires them so much so that three years later, when he gets to Jerusalem, the first people he seek out, it's the church. And so I put these questions before you. Is Jesus King and Lord, Son of God, to you? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? Has the gospel-changing makeover begun in your own life? Do you have before and after proof that you've been changed by the Holy Spirit? Were you greedy? And do you now have an increasing measure of contentment and generosity? Generosity. 
Were you angry and violent? Have you experienced increasing measures of peace? And, and is the person who angers you most in the world not your enemy but yourself and your own sin? Have you been angry? Were you gossipy? And do you now experience a measure of using your words to build up? Was porn or sexual sin ensnaring? Have you experienced holiness, the cutting of arms, the gouging out of eyes? Have you been captivated by some, something beautiful, namely Jesus Christ? Christ, my fear is that we sometimes emphasize the nature of indwelling sin and we minimize what it means to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit who changes us and makes us new. That you look at Paul, there's a before and there's an after. And he doesn't become less sinful because at the end of his life, he says, I'm still the chief of sinners. But this guy is on this path toward being remade after the image of Christ. There's change. And do you love the body of Christ? And not just the body, this body. Do you just tolerate Christians? Do you just kind of come and check off your list? I'm going to go get my worship on today and I'm out, Pastor. Or do you actually enjoy the body and the friendships and the community? And learning together and bearing bur burdens and being safe people to confess to and, and people who will walk with people in hard stretches, people who will rejoice when there is rejoicing and will mourn when you have to bury your husband, people who will walk with you in the valley and in the mountaintops. Do you enjoy the body of Christ? Because if you don't, it's not a mark of a believer we can't say we love Christ and we hate his bride. These are marks. I told you this last point is quick and it's really quick. An important reason for your conversion. An important reason. If I were to ask you, why does Jesus save you? Why does he save sinners? I guarantee you I could get about 20 different answers and you would all be right. He saves sinners to nullify the boasting of any human. He saves sinners to keep his promise to Adam and Eve that I will send a rescuer. He saves sinners to shut the mouth of Satan. He saves sinners to wow the angels, that, 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 that we have been given this beautiful salvation that the angels long to look into. He saves sinners that he may lavish us with his grace and his mercy. He saves sinners to put his power on display for the ages. He saves sinners to give Jesus a bride to die for and to live for. He saves sinners to give Jesus a people that he can send the Holy Spirit to, to indwell you 
you could go on and on and on with why does God save sinners, and the answers would be innumerable. But the one that's honed in on this passage is so that saved sinners will play their role in saving sinners. Did you notice how often we're told that Paul preached? In the synagogue, he's preaching. In Jerusalem, he's preaching. Everywhere he goes, he is proclaiming the goodness of God. And the temptation is to read this and to pedestal Paul. And what I mean by that is when you read, for example, that verse right there where, where verse 16, right? Uh, no, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We look at the apostle Paul and we think that that passage says he is the chosen instrument. The means one, like he's the one and only, but that's not what it says. It does not say he is the chosen instrument. This is not a slip of the pen. Luke uses the specifying a particular thing or a particular person all over the passage. He went and breathed murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. But you notice what it says there? He is a chosen instrument. A. which means one of many. Who are the other chosen instruments of God to proclaim the excellencies of the one who calls you from his darkness into his marvelous light? Who else is a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a people for God's own possession, who else does Jesus intend on proclaiming his goodness? You look at him in the mirror every day. It's you. And me. One reason Jesus saves you, beloved is that you who have been transferred from the domain of darkness might until you breathe your final breath go out of this life and into the next proclaiming the goodness of the one who saved you. On your campuses and the cigar shop, tennis courts, and courthouses, your grocery stores and your garage gyms, your boardrooms and the block, over meals and after watching movies with friends, in your home and as you hobby, you're a chosen instrument of Jesus to speak of his goodness. May the Lord help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We commit our time to you and pray, Lord, that you will continue to patiently and graciously and mercifully conform us to the image of Jesus. Thank you for the beauty of conversion. 
Thank you that we can examine our own hearts to see if we are truly in the faith. If we are not, I pray that we would bow the knee this day through your leading. If we are, Lord, give us joy unspeakable. Lord, conform us to your image. Make us like your saints of old. Give us courage and boldness, not out of guilt, but from a place of deep gratitude to share this hope that we have as your spirit leads and guides us. So help us, Holy Spirit. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stay.